We need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. And I'm Thomas O'Neill White. After May 14th, how can we afford not to talk about race? About education, about segregation, about humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that Topps Market. The suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. We need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence and more money into art. We're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truths. I'm Buffalo What's Next. Annette Daniels-Taylor with us. Annette, we can introduce her in a lot of different ways. We can introduce her as a writer, an actor, a filmmaker, a storyteller. Um, how do all those sound to you, Annette? <laughs> I like storyteller. That's that's my favorite. That's what I've been trying to... I think I said something like, I'm a story artist mm. recently. And someone said, what's that? An artist who tells stories. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk uh, a little bit about writing, though, just to start mm-hmm. things off. What are you writing about these days? Um, I am. I've been. I've been distracted. I'm. Hmm. I'm supposed to. I'll tell you what I'm supposed to be writing. Okay. I'm supposed to be writing a script of a book I that was recently released called "Shoot the Storm," and um, I was blessed to receive a um, a NISCA grant to create the film so that's that's planning for uh production this summer i'm i've been a little distracted with the play i'm in right now you came here what 1999 1999 1999 october 21st is there can you give us a uh, compare and contrast to um what it was like for a black actor to come here in 1999 compared to the way it is in 2023 oh wow um well, I can. I'll talk about myself Please. as a black actor coming here. Um, I didn't really know the theater scene. I didn't know the television uh, or movie scene, and so I I broke in by uh, my father-in-law took us to Paul Robeson to see a play. He was very good friends with Laverne Clay at the time. Um, uh, Laverne Clay's past, and Laverne was in a play with another actress, June. Oh God, I forgot June's name. Please forgive me. Mm. And June is an uh, an elder, a veteran actor, and it was. Um, I was so moved by the performance and the community in the theater that I asked if um, I could volunteer. And they told me that there was a summer program coming up, so I volunteered to um, teach a sewing class in the um, in the summer program, Jumping Jambalaya. And this ne- the following season, I was approached by the artistic director uh, to work as a costume designer. Um, I worked as a costume designer for four seasons, and at the time I was writing a play, and um, the production or program coordinator with Just Buffalo, Joyce Carolyn, and I became good friends. She she started to mentor me, and she introduced me to different producers in different theaters, and she read my script, and we had a, a staged reading at the Langston Youth Center through Just Buffalo. 
So then I got to meet the people at Just Buffalo, and we started working together. Writing, I started writing more, and writing more, and then I started becoming a teaching artist and um, so I was going into schools with um, the former Arts and Education Institute and um, teaching about theater and teach connecting different theater shows to whatever their curriculum was and then Arts and Ed commissioned me to write a solo theatrical piece. So for me I feel as an actor coming into Buffalo who didn't know anybody and didn't know how to like break into the scene, um, just talking to a few people, like you, you have to, you have to be vulnerable enough to go into whatever door is open. So I knew I was introduced to the Paul Robeson, so that's how it started. And Paul Robeson, that organization, I was able to meet the people at Just Buffalo because I was a writer, and that led me to arts and education because I was also an actor, and so it was a sort of a web. We're going to know uh, Annette Daniels-Taylor uh, this morning Hi. <laughs> Buffalo, What's Next? And uh, if you want to find out a little more, your website's AnnetteDanielsTaylor.com. Yes, uh, yes. Which I would highly recommend. It's <laughs> tremendously uh, entertaining, uh, lots of videos and other things as well. You talked a little bit about writing uh, plays and such. Are there themes that you like to touch upon, or do you just kind of go where the muse takes you at that time? I have been working a lot with historical ideas. And um, the first feature or full-length play that I had produced in Buffalo was produced at Roteless Travel Theater, and it was called A Little Bit of Paradise. I was blessed to win uh, an Artie Award for that. And it, um, it was a play that talked about the history of Buffalo during 1924. Um, originally, when I, like, my first draft of the play really dealt with what was going on with the Ku Klux Klan mm. and Mayor Schwab, and there were all of these characters. It was this this gigantic play. And, <laughs> and later on, it got sculpted down to about, like, five characters and like, oh, we don't need to see the mayor. And the the Ku Klux Klan issue became an issue in the play, but it wasn't the main focus. I realized that what I wanted to really talk about in the play was the relationship between um, multi-generational black women in Buffalo. Um, segregation and isolation and how we can become family even though we're not blood. So that was, and I simply used some some historical events that were happening around that time to dress the story. And curious about the lessons that you learned from that. That, that sounds like some pretty intense research you did and how it may have impacted life in Buffalo through the years and where we are today? Um, I actually started to really fall in love with Buffalo when I was writing that play. Um, when I first came to Buffalo, I was really attracted to it because it reminded me a lot of the landscape of Staten Island, where I was from, where I am from. And um, so I was able to, I feel, like find my place or find my space in Buffalo because I felt 
familiar with um, the community landscape and with, I guess, sort of the population. Um, and in my research for a little bit of paradise, I found out about how African Americans were migrating to the city and why. And um, at first, we were migrating here um, after um, after the Civil War, and we were getting our freedom by, you know, uh, when the enslaved were coming here and traveling to Canada, and some of us decided we're just going to stay here because there was a small community of African Americans on the Lower East Side, and it started to grow. By the 1920s, there was another migration here, and, um, and people, and, and at that time, there was not enough housing for the amount of people that were coming from either the South and from Europe. So that made, um, that had the local government working with contractors to sort of create places for all of us to live. Um, when we first got here, we were living close with Germans and Irish. And then later on, by the time the 50s and 60s happened, um, we were more siloed. In my research, I discovered that there was a, um, in 1924, there was a big um, group of Ku Klux Klan members, and they had started, they had a headquarters at the, um, on Chippewa at the old Calumet building. At some point, I don't remember the exact date, the membership list was stolen from the Ku Klux Klan building on Chippewa. The Klan reported the loss, and when the membership list was stolen, someone had the bright idea, whoever stole it, to take the list and publicize it. They made little pamphlets of everybody's name who was on the list, who lived in Buffalo, West Seneca, Hamburg, Cheektowaga, Williamsville, all throughout the towns and cities of Western New York. They printed that list, and it was posted on the doors of City Hall. Wow. I thought that was a great story. It was a story that most people had forgotten about. Mayor Schwab at the time, Francis Schwab, took that list and decided that whoever's name was on that list, if they worked for the city, they were no longer going to work for the city. Wow. There were people who were fired. There were business owners who lost their businesses. Police officers' names were on that list. There were a couple of judges. There were some um, religious people. So there was a community shaming. It was a community shaming. People were selling the list, the list for, um, for 25 cents, too. It was mixed in with like some of the newspapers. You can get the list and the newspaper. And um, some people killed themselves. There was a number of people who had um, committed suicide because they were found out. So in my play, I decided since no one had taken, like, had decided to, like, I stole the list. I'm the one that stole the list. Right. No one had taken the blame. I decided that one of my characters in the play had stolen the list. It was a girl named Queenie who dressed as a boy to keep herself and her brother her sister, excuse me, it was two sisters, and they stole the list, and 
they stole the lisp because they were trying to get out of the cold. So they broke into the building and they saw the, the metal box. They thought the metal box was money. They left, the police were after them, and one of the police officers who was after them was one of the people who was a member of the Klan. So in the story, that doesn't happen in the play, this is like pre, you know, the story that sure. she tells someone in the play, like we were running and then, you know, her, bro her sister gets shot and they were both disguised as boys to keep themselves safe. So when she enters the play, she's trying to get some food and she's, you know, trying to speak to the person, um, Bessie, who is the housekeeper, and Bessie lets her in and feeds her and then discovers that she's a girl dressed as a boy. So this play was written, you know, it was produced in 2009, and I wasn't really thinking about gender issues at the time. I was thinking about the way many enslaved people ran away and disguised themselves as men or women to keep themselves safe. So I was thinking, you know, this is in the 20s, and these, in, in my mind, these girls traveled from the South, and they were girls traveling on the rails or traveling on the road, and girls need to keep themselves safe. So Bessie, who feeds them, is in her late 50s, and she works for a woman who appears to be white, she is married to a black man. She is a black woman, but when people see her, they see some people see her as a white woman. In the play, she has these conversations with her husband, which says, "Why I do not want to play the who's who's more Negro game," <laughs> and she's like, and basically she says, "I was born a black woman." If people out in the world are blind to that, that's their business. It's not mine. I don't have to go around with a sign on my back that says I'm black. And if you can't see that I'm black, that's not my fault. If someone sees me and thinks that I'm white, I don't have to prove that to anyone. So those are the conversations that come up in the play. Do I have to tell people I'm black? And Bessie looks black. Um, the little girl, Queenie, looks black. Um, the husband, he looks black, but our main character, Louisa, looks white. And so those were the questions that I was talking about, like our appearance and what that means. It's, you know, what is it, the, the quality of a person as opposed to the way they look? You know, we're looking at character here. My husband used to talk about um, being in Buffalo versus being in New York. He okay. would always say... You know, Annette, I was never stopped by the police in Buffalo. Growing up in Buffalo, never. I was never stopped by the police. I didn't get, I didn't start getting stopped by the police until I moved to New York City. Really? So, I mean, that's a. I mean, I would say that's a huge contrast to today. Right? That is a huge contrast to today. And I have met other black men in Buffalo who have left Buffalo and come back and said the same thing to me. They are also my generation. Now, I know that I, I have been stopped by the police in Buffalo and in New York. <laughs> okay. Well, all right. There you go. <laughs> and, and, I'm you glad know, you can laugh. You know, <laughs> and, and I have been stopped by black police officers in Buffalo who have been kind and generous. And I've been like, <laughs> you know, and it's, it's usually it's like, for me, they have been traffic violations. 
And that's, you know, that's neither here nor there. I'm, I'm not, I wasn't blaming anybody. I wasn't upset at anybody. It was like, you know, and they were always um, letting me go with a, you know, I'm, I'm letting you go with a warning. Mm-hmm. And which was always like, oh, I'm, just, I'm so much better. I, that's great. But my thing has always been how we treat people. You know, I, how we, how the police treat us, how we treat the police, how teachers treat us, how we treat teachers and the thing is when people are out of their uniforms when people aren't in their place of business I don't know what they are I don't know if you're a doctor or a lawyer or a teacher or a grocery worker I don't know that all I know is that you're human so I was raised by my black mothers and my black grandmothers and aunts to treat people with the same kind of kindness you want to be treated with and as you're growing up, you feel, or as, as I was growing up, I used to feel that I was going to get that in return. So I'm going to be nice to people. People hmm. are going to be nice to me. But then as you grow up, you realize that doesn't always happen. I was also taught, and I also believe that just because someone gives me anger or gives me unkindness, that doesn't mean I have to give it back to you. Because that's easy. I have, I try, and it is a practice. You know, and I. So something you have to practice. You have to practice every day. I have to practice every day to respond with anger. To respond if someone's giving me anger, I have to respond in either a neutral way or with kindness. I have to, because that is the challenge. It's so much easier for me to just yell back at someone if they're yelling at me, and I often have to catch myself if it's starting to come out. You know, these are the the lessons that. I learn as, you know, in this particular decade and being a mom, you have to, like, it's just it's just something you have to practice. It's not something that you're going to wake up one morning and go, oh, my God, I'm a transformed human. <laughs> my goodness, I feel, I love everyone, and I'm going to give everyone love. Yeah, I'm, not, like, it is, I'm not feeling that. Yeah, it is a practice every day. And I think most religious Leaders will tell you it is a practice. That is why there are religious books to you know go back and refer to. Um, and so, and I see you have this. Remember their names. This is a practice to honor them, remember them. May their memory be a revolution. So, you know, when when things like the Tops massacre happens, and then you go to the Jefferson Avenue area and you see all this love you see people speaking to each other coming out not just giving food but giving hugs that's transformative that's amazing I want to see that again I want to see that in all the neighborhoods you know and then and again it is a practice because people that look like me have are regularly on guard like you know um, I want to just jump back about your play in, in the research. And we're getting off the topic a know, little bit, to sort of, but that's all. But place. that's good. I, I appreciate <laughs> your honesty on these things. We look back to to Mayor Schwab, and I'm I'm pleased that you you told me the, that backstory because I didn't know that, and he's now a new hero. But uh, <laughs> but that type of community shaming would we see that today? Oh, that's a that's interesting. Well, I we do see that, don't we? I mean, we see it on social media. 
Sure. But, I, you know, this was this. That sounds almost like it was an org. I mean, granted, it was led it by was, the mayor to a certain extent, but it had an almost organic kind of a feel to it. And it had a an anonymous, you know, there was either an anonymous individual or an anonymous group that said, we're breaking into this building. We're stealing this list and we're going to let everybody know who's a part of the clan and where they live because the list had their names and their addresses. Hmm. So every and I also I feel like in 1924 we didn't have as many outlets to find information quickly. You know, we we had a lot of different newspapers at the time. We had the Irish, we had a Catholic, we had you know Africa. I'm sure there was. I'm not completely sure, but I'm going to say there was probably an African American newspaper. Certainly. There was probably a Greek newspaper and an Italian and a Polish. So there was. There were ways for us, for different siloed um, communities to get information. I think as communities, we tend to always think that our community is amazing. We want to be proud to be African-American. We want to be proud to be Jamaican. We want to be proud to be Greek and Italian, proud to be the Irish. We want to be proud of of where we're from. And when you have those kinds of blemishes put on your community, it we're saddened, we're ashamed. You know, black people have been, in, in America, we've often, I know in, in my part of black people in America, from where I come from, I've always heard, oh my goodness, isn't that, it's just too bad that they were black that they did that. Like, we're, we're always, like, we're hearing the news and we're waiting. Oh, please don't let them say mm. that that person was black. Don't let that person be black. You know, and and as I got older, I used to think that is, I, I don't like that. You know, white folks, y'all don't have that. <laughs> y'all, not, y'all not listening to the radio or watching TV saying, oh, please don't let them be white. You might be saying, oh, please don't let them be Italian. Oh, please don't let them be Polish. Oh, please don't let them be Irish. But we can't look at you and see your nationality. We look at you and we see they're white. You look at us and you say they're black, but you know, a black person in this country, in this state, may be from Jamaica, may be from Nigeria, may be from Ghana, may be from Colombia, may be from Mexico, and they may not have a connection to the legal enslavement that happened in this country. You don't know. But we put us all in one lump, in one lump, and, and, and then the people who aren't black we feel, look at us and say, oh, look at those black folks. Hmm. Look at them hanging out on the corner. Look, oh, I bet they didn't even finish the education because of how we're dressed. You know, just just because someone's wearing um, sneakers and an athletic jersey doesn't mean they have they don't have their doctorate. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> it doesn't mean that they don't own their own business. It doesn't mean that they're not successful in what they do. That's simply the uniform they decided to wear today. I don't know what they're wearing tomorrow at nine o'clock, but we make assumptions because we feel like, you know, we need to put together the puzzle in our head about who someone is. Um, We just need to talk to each other. That's how we put together the puzzle. If you want to know who somebody is, start talking to them. So. I most certainly am enjoying talking to you, Annette Daniels-Taylor. Um, and I, I, think, I think we're going to have to have you come back and talk some more because we're, 
<laughs> we're, we're definitely yeah, going off the rails to a certain extent, but it's it's an enjoyable conversation. And I'm I think I I'm going to get a great answer here, so I'm going to ask you this question. We've asked a lot of a lot of folks who've come in for this program. What does Buffalo need? That's what I I heard you I heard not you I asked I heard um, someone just ask Johanna. Oh right, right. Yep, yep, yep. Dave Debo just did that. Yeah, and and as she said, that's a pretty broad question. It is, Um, but you know that's why we like writers. Writers (laughs) know how to take it into new, into interesting directions. Um, Buffalo. I feel like Buffalo really needs to remember who Buffalo is. Someone like me who comes to Buffalo and I say, "Oh my goodness, this city is so amazing." Look at all this incredible architecture. Look at all of these different nationalities. Look at all these different restaurants. Look at this rich history. The history of this city is incredible. And whenever I work on a project, I work and research the history of this city. There have been so many amazing accomplishments socially, technologically, academically, from this city. It may come from the fact that we spend so much time indoors because it's so cold, Hmm. so we're able to think and dream and make up things. But my feeling is a lot of people in Buffalo would benefit from going to either the internet and researching the history of their particular communities or just picking up some books and researching Buffalo. This town is rich with history. The Niagara Movement, the Underground Railroad. I mean, we talked about Mayor Schwab and him like helping get rid of the Klan. The Klan never came back to Buffalo. I mean, as far as I know, there, there may be some members of the Ku Klux Klan here now, but that's just the tip of the iceberg. That's just 1924. Right. Then the 30s happened, and then the 40s and the 50s and the 60s. I mean, we were one of the few cities that didn't have race riots, and we, you know, in the 60s, there was a, a riot of some kind here. I, I wrote a play called 1967 that talks about that riot, but... You know, we have overcome so many kinds of obstacles in this particular city based on the fact that I feel we can talk to each other. Um, And I feel shows like this, which allow everyday people and the exceptionals and the artists and the scholars and the religious You've, you've had so many different kinds of people on this show talking about what's next for Buffalo. I feel what's next for Buffalo is based on what's happened in the past with Buffalo. And the people who live in Buffalo, if they can help remember and research why Buffalo is great, I think that'll continue the greatness. You know, Johanna said we need to tell people um, we need to tell people outside of Buffalo how great it is. We have people who, you know, I have friends just like her who live in a particular city and are unhappy. Buffalo could make them happy. I don't know. It could. But I think the people that are already here, 
when I came here, I was unhappy because of the weather and I didn't have my friends and I was searching for community. I realized that I needed to figure out what this town was about. And I think the people who are born and raised here, some of you remember the greatness of this city. And I, it's, it's here. We just have to dig a little and stop thinking about what the city doesn't have. Think about what the city does have. It has great people and people who care about themselves and care about one another. And isn't that, that's all that makes a city great is the people. So that's what Buffalo needs. It needs to remember how great it is. Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Nathaniel Taylor. Thank you very much for joining us on Buffalo What's Next. Thanks for inviting me. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. In this segment of Buffalo What's Next, we're talking with Dr. Matthew Giordano. He is the president of Villa Maria College. Thanks for joining us, doctor. Thank you for having me. After all these years of listening to you on the radio, it's great to be here. <laughs> Very nice. And, of course, all these years of living in a community where Villa Maria College has been an institution here, but it's an institution that has changed dramatically from my time as, as a youth. Where is it right now? Talk about its, its makeup and uh, maybe just a little bit about its history. Sure, thanks. Uh, Villa, over the last 10 years, we really feel like we've positioned ourselves as a leading educational institution here in Western New York and specifically as one of the real innovators when it comes to student support and student success. Um, so that flows directly from our mission and our values. We're a, a Felician uh, institution of the Felician Sisters in the Catholic And at one Church. time, all run by the Felicians. By the Felician Sisters. Right. Yeah. I'm the first lay president of Villa Maria College. So right. happy to have that distinction. Um, so our, our mission is really to help transform lives. And by doing that, to transform our community and to be one of the main agents of change here in Buffalo. And so we've done a lot, again, to push the envelope when it comes to making college more accessible and affordable and to really promoting student success. So we were the first college, for instance, to eliminate uh, the cost of books and supplies. We provide books and art supplies to our students as part of their tuition. We were the first college to eliminate uh, pre-college courses, so our students go right into credit-bearing courses. We've done a lot on uh, trying to promote the uh, mental and emotional health of our students. We have a program, the only one of its kind here in Western New York, that's specifically for students with learning differences, things like autism and ADHD. Uh, and we are really you know, proud of what we've been able to do and how we've been able to push the envelope, but we have a lot more to do. So we're really trying to take the next step into creating very intentional uh, career pathways for our students and partnering with local businesses uh, and industries to make sure that there's a direct line for our students uh, into good paying jobs when they're done. But also there's an intentionality at the school as well to be culturally diverse. Absolutely. And so 
these uh, career pathways are really important because of our student body. So <clears throat> our student body is about 85% uh, Erie County residents. So we're very local. We're small. We're about 500 students. Though when I was over, I did meet a, a student from Italy. I well, yes, yes, we do. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yes, everybody meets Maria. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so about 85% from Erie County and about half of that 85% uh, our students who reside in the city of Buffalo, and the vast majority of them are coming from the east side of Buffalo. So we are the most diverse private college in western New York. About 35 to 40% of our students are African American. Another 20% identify as students of color. We have the highest percentages of students with learning differences, the highest percentages of first-generation college students uh, of all the privates. So very, very diverse community. And we know that in order for our students to be successful post-graduation, they really need clear intentional pathways into career opportunities. And what we've seen happen in the last couple of years, and certainly since uh, 514, is that more and more businesses are realizing the urgent need to diversify their workforce and that it can't just be for them let's put up a, a job ad and hopefully we'll get some diverse candidates, but that they have to be very intentional about it. So we're having lots of conversations with employers about how we create those pathways uh, so that we're, we're making sure that, again, our mission of, of community change, generational transformation is really uh, coming true. You mentioned uh, the largest percentage of first-generation college students. That's an interesting statistic. Uh, what do you attribute that to? Well, part of it, again, is who we've traditionally served in terms of our demographic. We are uh, full partners with Say Yes Buffalo, and we have been from the very beginning of Say Yes's time here in Buffalo. And again, we're drawing so many students from uh, the east side of Buffalo in particular. If you're not familiar with where Villa is, right. we're kind of tucked away in this uh, residential neighborhood that is right on the border of the city of Buffalo and Cheektowaga. The city line runs right through our <laughs> campus, right behind Schiller Park. So we get a lot of students whose families have not gone to college before. Um, now more new immigrant, new American families um, whose families have not gone to college before. Uh, but I think a lot of it is really because of the culture that we've created on campus. Again, it stems from our mission and our core values, but we have done a lot to be extremely uh, upfront about the challenges that our students face and trying to figure out ways to overcome them. So I'll give you a quick example of that. Sure. Uh, transportation is a major issue for a lot of students uh, uh, throughout Western New York. And again, particularly coming from the communities that we tend to serve. And we're a commuter campus. We don't have residence halls on campus. So for a long time, uh, the closest bus stop was a half a mile away. So students had to get to that bus stop, first of all, which often meant they had to transfer buses. And then they would have to walk a half a mile. And in Buffalo winters, walking mm -hmm, a half right, a mile with all right. your books and everything. So we were able, um, with the great help of Senator Tim Kennedy, to uh, uh, work with the NFTA to get a bus stop right on campus this okay. year. And that's a game changer for our students. At the a same, lot, you see 
Absolutely. large number of students using those. Yeah, okay. and it's going to continue to increase uh, right. over time. At the same time, we didn't just rest on our laurels with that. We've piloted a program with Lyft, the rideshare service, so that we're providing students a number of rides each month um, with Lyft that they can use to go back and forth from campus. So it's not, you know, these aren't panaceas. They don't solve every uh, but it does remove issue. a certain type of but barrier, which is barrier. very understandable. Yeah. yeah. Kept me from going to class a couple of times, Absolutely. As a matter of fact. Yeah. 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 And I, I mean, I've heard stories throughout the years of my time at Villa of students who, you know, were taking classes until um, late at night and then walking home uh, six miles, you know, because there wasn't a bus or they couldn't rely mm. on any other transportation. I mean, no student should have to try to figure that out on top of all the coursework. And well, that would make a, a great to. story to tell your grandchildren that you had to walk that's six right. miles in the Buffalo winter. But anyway, <laughs> that's um, absolutely right. I'm interested also in the Villa neighborhood. Like you said, it's yeah. right there on the city line uh, off of Pine Ridge Road. And I have memories. I had a great aunt and uncle who lived right in that neighborhood, one of those brick ranches that's just on the other side of, uh, of Pine Ridge. And I you know, haven't really been back there much in the last half century. And then just going over there for Villacon uh, recently, I was uh, not, not taken aback because I knew that, that it had changed. But it was remarkable to see how the neighborhood has changed. Mm-hmm. And you have been at the school before your time as president for some time, what, 18 years, I 18 think? 18 years. So now, you yeah. have seen that change. Talk about the change. Yeah, it's been really interesting. Uh, Villa, uh, when I got there, and certainly going back, Villa's been around for a little over 60 years. And when it was started by the Felician sisters, it was very much a Polish-American neighborhood. Uh, And, uh, you know, most of the people who worked there, in addition to the sisters, were Polish-Americans from the community. And most of the students were as well. Over time, that, that began to change. And um, right now, that our neighborhood is, again, extremely diverse. So, um, you know, racially diverse, uh, a, a lot of uh, new American families, more Muslim Americans have moved into the neighborhood. Uh, really a reflection of all the demographic changes we've seen in Buffalo have kind of happened. In, and again, this, this, uh, this little community that's a bit off the beaten path. So... Um, you know, we embrace that, and, and it's part of who we are. And, again, it's the community that we've always served. And it's really important to us that we're very good neighbors and that we are doing what we can do to make Villa a very uh, well, warm and welcoming uh, place for everybody. It's interesting also that what kind of brought my attention to Villa Maria, like I said, it's been around since I've been here, so um... – was Villacon. Yeah. I went to Villacon. Uh, the, the Wakanda Alliance invited me to come over, and uh, uh, it was an amazing event. And it's interesting. It was the second one for mm-hmm. the school. How did that all transpire? Yeah, this is not my background at all. <laughs> <laughs> Mine neither, as people now know, yes. <laughs> uh, well, so at Villa, in addition to all the stuff you know that I've already talked about in terms of um, you know our, the culture we've created and uh, the kind of support uh, systems that we've put in place. We have this niche in high-tech, creative art and design programs. So people know us a lot for art and music, and we've really, again, have been trying to stay on top of those areas by moving into emerging fields. So animation right now is our largest uh, uh, program of study. Uh, game design, which we launched a few years ago, 
is quickly catching up to animation, very, very popular. Uh, we have digital filmmaking and graphic design, interior design has been one of our standout programs. But in that animation and gaming world, uh, a lot of our students are really into, as you would expect, things like cartoons and video games and fantasy. And, and so we came up with this idea of, well, let's do a, a con in Buffalo uh, and let's try to host it here at Villa. And this was really the brainchild of one of my colleagues, our provost, Dr. Uh, Hartnett. And we did it last year not knowing what to expect, hmm. and 500 people showed up for it. So we knew we could go bigger and better this year, and so we just had it very recently uh, on campus. And it was a resounding success. So, you know, lots, lots of people dressed up as characters from movies and video games and comic books, a lot of vendors and artists. We had special guest speakers. Uh, and it's just it's a lot of fun for our students, but also for the community. You said 500 last year. Do you have an idea yet this yeah, year? Yeah, we're close to 700 this year. Wow, that's, yeah. some, that's some growth, that's yeah. for sure. Absolutely. We're talking with uh, Dr. Matthew Giordano, the president of Villa Maria College on Buffalo What's Next. What also intrigued me about you, Dr. Giordano in our conversation when I bumped into you, that your entry into academia was through African-American literature. I, I, you know, I don't, I'm, I'm sure there are probably other presidents of, of higher education across the country who might have similar backgrounds. I'm not totally sure that there are. What, uh, talk about what drew you to that particular field of study. Well, I decided after uh, I did my undergrad at Binghamton and I decided I had a really influential professor there and I got really interested in American literature broadly and I went to graduate school at Ohio State for uh, American literature. And if you're going to be a student of American literature, you are going to be on some level a student of African American literature, just like in dance and art and music so many of the seminal works of American literature have been written by black authors. Um, so you're going to know Hurston and Morrison and Du Bois and all sorts of other titans of American uh, literature and culture and African-American literature and culture. And uh, even a lot of the works written by white writers, you know, are foregrounding issues of race all the time because it has been one of our founding um, conundrums and, and issues in this country is trying to understand uh, how race impacts everything in American life and, and understand how it's impacted our development, uh, and particularly in the 19th century with the Civil War and slavery. But I think there are deeper reasons why I was drawn to it uh, specifically. And um, a lot of that has to do with, you know, what I feel like I was lacking in my education. Fell in graduate school as I started to read more African American literature, that I had really been deprived uh, throughout my education because I was reading and learning about so many things for the first time. And I'll give you a couple of examples. Please. You know, I grew up in Rochester, I grew up in Arondequoit, so it's a first ring suburb of Rochester. And most of my experience uh, was, my lived experience was with white people. Uh, and Yet, you know, like, like so many other people um, who have a similar kind of background and experience, you know, we're always acutely aware of the racial tension in our country, whether it's something as simple as, you know, don't go into that neighborhood or yeah. it's, um, 
you know, seeing things on television, uh, or it's what we hear from people around us, sometimes very overtly racist comments and jokes, sometimes much more um, less overt. Uh, but still, we imbibe it all the time. And like most people in America, you know, I was curious, like, why are things the way they are? What's um, why has our history been the way it has been? I'm an idealist. Why can't things be better? Sure. Uh, but what I realized in graduate school was how superficial my knowledge was. So a couple of quick examples on that front. I grew up in Rochester, New York, the home of Frederick Douglass. Right. And I never read anything that Frederick Douglass wrote in in my education up until graduate school. That says a lot. I, and not necessarily just about you. I'm Right. Afraid. And I barely knew anything about him. Uh, and so I read his uh, narrative, uh, his slave narrative. And really, I remember feeling angry. Like, why is this the first time? Why do I have to go to a Ph.D. program uh, in literature in order to read this when he was from... He lived for a long time in my hometown and, and is buried there and yeah. is buried there and is one of the probably the greatest orator in American history, one of the great um, writers in American history and one of the most famous people in the world in the 19th century. And yet, you know, I had been deprived of, of really being exposed to him. And another example was um, when I first saw pictures of lynchings. Hmm. And again, this was in graduate school. And, and I remember, of course, that it's just a horrific, you know, these images are, are so shocking and revolting and uh, dehumanizing. And then when you realize these, these aren't just images, these are postcards. These are things mm. that people who attended the lynchings are sending off to their friends and family in other cities and bragging about what they had done. And I, I was really disgusted that I had never seen these images before. So I really, I think a lot of it for me has come from this feeling of being deprived of understanding better my own history, because this is part of the American story, it's part of my story, um, uh, being deprived of um, knowledge that I need in order to make sense of where we are today because the thing is if we don't have that knowledge then other things fill in the gap for us we we get our we get other narratives that are really dangerous and really wrong and really bigoted uh and so i just wanted to go deeper and deeper and deeper into understanding you you mentioned when we were talking about the uh, tony morrison you dropped uh, uh, her name yeah uh as one of the great american authors and one of the great black american authors um, her work is being taken off school yeah. school shelves in other states, and I, I, I think it even may have uh, made the rounds in in uh, my own district as well. As mm -hmm. much as that uh, upsets me to mention, to admit that, but um, you kind of just answered it. But I want you to, as somebody who who's thought about these things, make the case why Toni Morrison's work needs to be available to students. Look, these issues that uh, have plagued our nation since its very inception are incredibly complex. They are deep-rooted. They are historical. They are um, cross-disciplinary. They're uh, painful. 
And if we try to shield young people from the complexity and the pain and the, um, the, the enormous range of uh, issues that, that are uh, informative in our understanding of who we are as a people, then we're just going to continue to repeat the same mistakes over and over again. And because, again, what happens, and we saw it here in Buffalo, we saw it with the young man who enacted just a, a terrible day of horror for our community. What happens is we fall prey to half-truths, misinformation, conspiracy theories, paranoia. We start coming up with narratives about why things are the way they are that are simply false. Um, and we have a duty as educators to make sure that we are combating those narratives and not hiding uh, from the truth and not hiding the truth from our, our young people and our students. And so, you know, at Villa, again, we, um, Zanetta Everhart is on our board of trustees. Zanetta is an alum. And I actually taught Zanetta African-American <laughs> history. And uh, Was she a good student? She was a great of student. Course. She's a wonderful person. Um, you know, her son, Zaire, who was also had been attending Villa, was the first person shot on uh, May 14th. And Zanetta's response has been to focus on education and to do her um, book drive where she's collecting books about race and African-American history for young people. And so we hosted an event back in the fall uh, that was focused on education's role in combating racism and violence. And we had a panel of, of young people and teachers and uh, support staff just really talking about their experiences in the education system with racism and issues of of race. And we're going to continue. We have some ideas about where we're going next with that series because it's it's absolutely critical. And I, I it gets me very angry, frankly, when I hear about some of the things that are being done around our country to try to minimize um, writers like Morrison or other writers who have incredibly important stories and knowledge to convey to us. We're coming down to our final few minutes here with uh, Dr. Matthew Giordano, the president of Villa Maria College. Uh, you know, early on when we were talking about Villa and we we're talking about the, the specialty programs, the media, animation, those are kind of, I guess, I'll use the word sexy, I guess, yeah. uh, attractions for, for young people who want to get involved in those types of things. What about the other side, though, that liberal arts element as well? Is that drifting away? And what, what, I mean, you know, obviously this is what you, your background is in, that type of thing, but it's not necessarily something that's on everybody's uh, to-do list or shopping list when they are looking for colleges. These yeah, I, I think we're at a really inf uh, important inflection point for the liberal arts and higher education. Uh, I will always defend the value of the liberal arts and not just as uh, from a purely you know, academic standpoint, but because we talk to employers all the time and they, without being prompted, they espouse the value of liberal arts. Uh, they will always say, we want uh, graduates with certain technical skills and abilities, but what we really want are graduates who are great critical thinkers, who know how to work collaboratively, who can communicate extremely well. And those are the very things that you learn in liberal arts courses. At the same time, uh, I think that higher ed needs to prove its value to people more than ever. Uh, the 
everyone knows about the high costs of higher ed and uh, a lot of questions before the pandemic and certainly exacerbated by the pandemic about whether higher ed is right for everybody and what's the true value of it. Are you getting a good return on investment if you decide to go to college? And so, you know, at Villa, we're working really hard to create a gen ed curriculum that certainly is going to continue to reinforce those liberal arts skills, but that are also very career uh, and job oriented. So we're embedding these competencies that uh, are really focused on career preparation. I don't think the two are mutually exclusive, and I think that's that's often where the conversation goes. Right. Uh, and I think there are ways that we can make sure that great uh, liberal arts and humanities content is still a part of our higher ed experience, but that we're also doing it in a, in a different way that is more reflective of what the needs are uh, today. And we know that uh, as a college president, your your time is is valuable. You're getting pulled in a lot of directions. As a matter of fact, we'll have to shorten this conversation to a certain extent because of that. Uh, at the same time, that shows that you've got a, lots of day-to-day things to take care of. Day-to-day, day-to-day, day-to-day. What about the vision? What's your vision? What is the vision moving forward for Villa? Yeah, so we really want to be a leader in creating a more equitable and prosperous Western New York. And we feel like we are very, very capable of that. We have spent a lot of time over the last few years partnering with all sorts of uh, community organizations, with businesses, with prominent leaders, with grassroots organizations, uh, because for us, partnerships is really key. We're small, we can't do everything ourselves. And we know that what we wanna see happen in Western New York is going to be very much a collaborative effort. So for us, uh, what that leadership means is, again, is that first of all, within our niche, that we are the go-to place for these creative, high-tech creative arts programs. Um, And then secondly, that we are really uh, uh, developing these very intentional pathways for our students. Everybody knows into careers. Everybody knows that Buffalo can't really have this full renaissance that we're all hoping is going to happen without unlocking the potential of the workforce within our city, with it, of the workforce of people of color primarily in our city. That's why Say Yes came to Buffalo. That's um, a big uh, part of, for instance, a report that Invest Buffalo Niagara just recently put out. That's what Tech Buffalo is trying to do, Bitwise Industries. I mean, there's so many um, people recognizing that we have to unlock the potential of our, um, our, our young people in our city to take us to the next level. And so Villa, as a given our demographics, given our history, given our mission, given the kinds of relationships that we have built, we really feel like we can be a leader in making that happen. And that's what we aspire to be. Dr. Matthew Giordano is the uh, president of Villa Maria College. Uh, Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. It was my pleasure. This is Buffalo What's Next on WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOL and Olean and WUBJ Jamestown, your NPR station.